In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. support. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Adverse childhood experiences, including child abuse and neglect, are a national issue. The impact is widespread and the students at your school are no exception. So how do we combat the impact of these events on students? At Fall Hamilton Elementary in Nashville, the administration sought to transition the school to a whole school approach that supports not only learning, but also social emotional development. Today, we speak with Matthew Portell from Fall Hamilton Elementary. Matthew is an educator and the principal of Fall Hamilton. His leadership has focused on meeting the complex needs of all students. As the principal, his work is focused around building a foundation with the teachers and staff in understanding adverse child experiences and their effects on students today and in their future. While building the structure of supports around developing a trauma-sensitive approach, the school has seen great successes with academics and social and emotional outcomes. Matthew will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find the interview useful. Hi, Matthew. Um, thanks for joining us today. Um, really good to chat and connect today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Excellent. So we might just jump right into it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to becoming an educator? Sure. So um, it was kind of a long route. I actually was in forestry um, and, and right out of high school, uh, thinking I wanted to be some sort of park ranger. Um, but quickly realized I didn't know if that really was what I wanted to do um, and knew for so many years that I enjoyed working with children and uh, knew that it was a strength of mine. And so I, I jumped into elementary education and uh, with the intention of teaching in a classroom for my career, um, genuinely just wanted to be a classroom teacher. And it seemed over time that Opportunity after opportunity kept opening up for me, and uh, I went from being a classroom teacher to an instructional coach for our school district um, around English learners. Um, that's my background, is teaching English um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a second language or third or fourth or who, whatever, how many other languages our children speak. And then uh, from there, I ended up moving into a role as a literacy coach. I have a strong passion for literacy. Um, I've been an, a teacher mentor, an assistant principal, and now I am what I said I would never be, and that is a principal. That's how it, it always is, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. So can you introduce us to Fall Hamilton Elementary? Um, just give us a little bit of context about this school, perhaps, and just uh, your time at the school as well. 
Sure. So this is my third year at Fall Hamilton. Um, we're in Nashville, Tennessee, um, which is um, Music City here in the U.S. And uh, we're just off of downtown. And uh, Nashville right now is an exploding city. Um, and the economy is exploding. Um, housing is 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 slim. And so um, my school is actually an urban school in a very gentrified area. And so around my school are half million dollar homes. Um, but my students, about 70% are actually considered low income um, and low socioeconomic households that my students live in. Um, we're predominantly African American. So about 60, 65% black and then 15% Hispanic, 15% white. Um, and we are an amazing school. We have 325 students. Uh, we're, we're called an enhanced option school, which uh, basically means we have an extended school day by 45 minutes. And parents can choose our school as an option. So about 60% of our student body come to the school as an option. Um, that means they're not zoned for our school. They don't necessarily live in our neighborhood. Um, I have um, about 40 staff, um, and that's, that's faculty and staff that are the most dynamic adults um, working for kids that I've experienced in my career. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating, the um, context in which you're working there. Um, so I, I think you, uh, there, there's been lots written about the school and a um, lot of um, videos and things like that that have been made. Mm -hmm. um, you, In one of the interviews, you talk about this um, unsustainable educational and professional environment when you first came to the school, when, uh, when you were first taking over. Can you speak to that a little bit, Matthew, about what the challenges were when you were first taking over? Sure. So uh, it was it was multifaceted, to, to be quite honest. Um, one of the issues was I was a new principal. And so um, I just didn't really have an idea of what to do. Mm. My year, and it, it really didn't have to necessarily do with kids, but it had everything to do with my staff. And so I learned quickly that um, a lot of our students here at Fall Hamilton operate under high amounts of stress. And so uh, we were having students um, having a crisis almost every single day, um, whether that looked like aggressive behavior towards other children or aggressive behavior towards adults or, uh, you know, flipping desks or this type of, uh, of behavior. And so at the time, I was attempting to take the traditional American educational approach of punishing kids. Um, and it was very apparent very quickly that this was not sustainable. It was not what was best for kids. Um, it wasn't sustainable for me as a principal. It wasn't sustainable for my teachers as professionals. Um, we were all exhausted, tired, and frustrated. And so um, at that, that, my first year, I think we, we gave 200 office referrals uh, mm. and we have 325 students. And so at the end of the year, um, something had to change. Either I was going to change my career or we were going to change the way we operate. 
Um, and two years later, I'm still in my career. So that tells you the choice we made. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And, and often, um, you know, we've spoken to a few schools where it gets to a point like that, where they, you know, everyone's invested or wanting a cultural change like that, um, like approaching a trauma-informed um, culture at the school. What does it mean to you to be trauma-informed at the school, if you were to explain it um, from your experience? Sure. So I think understanding trauma in general is imperative. And so um, here we operate under um, the mindset of the majority of our students have experienced trauma um, or now what it is is adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And so the more we got to know our kids and their situations, we realized that behavior was a symptom. Um, it wasn't it was a symptom of something that had happened to them. And so being trauma informed is understanding the effects of students environment or experiences and how that has an effect on them, their educational um, outcomes, their relationships, um, you know, how they perceive themselves and others. And so being trauma informed is operating under a mindset that knowing that, that, behavior isn't always necessarily related to defiance or um, compliance. It's really sometimes a symptom of something has happened. And, and, and so we operate here uh, in the mindset of, and it's easy, it's, it's really two words that we use. One is grace. Um, we operate under grace. We give kids opportunity to make mistakes uh, without punishment. But I don't anybody to get that confused with consequence. Students make mistakes here with consequence, but we don't always utilize punishment. And so it's learning from mistakes and teaching behaviors appropriately. For my staff, we call it pre-forgiveness. And so we have a hashtag that we use here at my school and it's hashtag pre-forgiveness. <laughs> the adults operating under, we're human beings, we have experiences, we have stresses, and sometimes we make mistakes, and sometimes that's with a child. Mm. And so understanding that we have to pre-forgive ourselves, and sometimes we have to ask for forgiveness from our kids. So it is multifaceted, but um, that's about as simplistic as I can say, but it is, it's very complex. Oh, I love that. I love hashtag pre-forgiveness. <laughs> I think we need to have more people take that on. Kai, I'll ask you to jump in if you had any questions in a bit. But one of the things I was struck by, Matthew, was um, the contrast of the school being in a fairly affluent sort of suburb. And, and um, one of the difficulties that I've kind of experienced in those contexts is that um, the kind of the tolerance, the grace that you talk about uh, within stuff, that doesn't necessarily um, become, you know, people don't adopt that very easily, particularly in those sort of contexts. Did you find that? And how did you sort of deal with that um, when you first encountered it? So when I, when, when I first came even just uh, under three years ago to Fall Hamilton, the neighborhood didn't look like it looks now. Right, right has happened literally over the last two years. Mm. Okay. I think the, the grace mindset or trauma informed um, when dealing with adults who are supporting students in trauma um, comes in educating the adults. And, and so we front loaded a lot about the, why are we doing this? Mm. What basis, what's the brain science behind it? Um, 
really front loading the why, 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 and always connecting back to the why. And I think that was how I got my faculty to start transitioning because I didn't just come in and say, we're going to do this. I came in and we did a lot of front loading about ACEs and, and the effects of trauma and the outcomes if a strong, stable, nurturing relationship isn't interjected into the children's life, what the potential outcomes are. And so I think it built a sense of urgency. Yeah, that's excellent. Kay, did you have any questions for Matthew at this stage? No, no, I don't. I was just really um, happy to hear that right from the outset there was a distinction made between punishment and consequence because that's such, mm -hmm. a, such an important point that just gets left because we just assume and it is all mixed up in the teacher's head and it's the driver of behavior from teachers that you don't want to see but sometimes mm -hmm. as the as the people in positions of leadership you can't work out why this behavior of the teacher is continuing and and it mm -hmm. comes down very often to that misconception that punishment and consequence is the same thing mm -hmm. and that drives a lot of our um attitudes that we spend an enormous amount of time trying to change but when you can mm -hmm. get that understanding and really internalize that as a teacher it's so so helpful i agree with yeah, so that was really good yeah that's great thank you yeah um so one of the fascinating things about the school uh matthew is how you've adapted the physical space to accommodate for the sort of the social emotional needs of the students could you speak to that a little bit and how that came about yeah, so we um, we we've done a lot of of of, of tag, tapping into research and tapping into what's best for kids and tapping into our experience as a faculty. Um, like I said, I have one of the most dynamic staffs that I've been able to work with in my career here, and um, there isn't anybody in my building that isn't here for kids, um, and there isn't anybody in here that mistreats children. And as sad as it is, that still happens all too often in schools and so <clears throat> we just know the the effect of iridescent lighting and, and how that having these bright lights on you all day can can create headaches and an and and ability to focus so uh, we took lighting as, as a strategy and, and having low lights in our classrooms and uh, and and we used color as a strategy because all white walled schools aren't very inviting and it, it's not um, it doesn't make you walk out and go this seems to be a great place but also understanding that color uh, has an effect on your on your um, on your mind it has effect on your on your um, on your body and so utilizing colors that we know calm students has been important and we also um, although I will be very honest and tell you we've been told we're not supposed to um, we do <laughs> use essential oil diffusers um, but we don't use them as often because apparently it does trigger some asthma for students um, we didn't have any of those experiences when we use them but um, for the sake of uh, make sure we're supporting kids especially their health we don't use them nearly as much um, but space is important yeah yeah that's that's so fascinating i i, I want to quickly ask you i'll let you have a drink there um just that little comment you said about not being not you know supposed to doing something uh, and we hear that a lot but I, i'm really curious yeah your take on that because i'm sure with some of the things you're talking about from top down you would have had people who are really skeptical and risk averse so 
what what is your sort of position on that and what would you kind of advise people listening in so um for the sake of transparency um i know my strengths and one of my strengths is i'm an activator so therefore i don't wait for people to come up with ideas i just jump right in um i'm also um i'm a rule breaker somewhat <laughs> and so um i i didn't realize my middle school and high school uh, days would prepare me to be a principal, but they have. Um, and, and I think when the focus is what is best for kids, that we have to continue to focus on what is best for kids. Uh, and so navigating it, if, if somebody tells me it's going to disrupt a child in any way, we will not do it. Um, but if we truly know that it's going to have a positive outcome on a child, we absolutely will try. And so I think operating under the mindset of really is kid focused um, and, and sometimes pushing the envelope on what the norm is because sometimes that norm needs to be changed. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about what you were saying about front loading and being clear about why. And that's such a huge part of, you know, being able to advocate successfully, isn't it? Um, in doing it absolutely is, especially with, um, and this really is, and you all know, this is pretty pioneer-based work. You know, we're on the front end of, of these uh, Im implementing trauma-informed practices and changing paradigms of adults around student behavior and needs, and, <clears throat> and my district is no different. So we are the only pilot school. Um, my district allows me and gives me the flexibility and support to do what we do, but in a, in a district where there's 167 schools, um, I do have some people behind me going, um, I don't know, I don't, <laughs> and I just keep saying, just wait and see, just wait and see, um, and so it, it is an interesting dynamic. Mm, excellent. So you have a trauma-informed practitioner at this school. Can you tell us about that role and how they integrate with the educators? Yes, so um, this was something I had uh, hoped for after my first year. <clears throat> I didn't know it, as far as I knew, it hadn't existed. And so I knew what we needed. Um, as an, even as a classroom teacher 12 years ago, um, I knew that my students needed support. Support that I wasn't trained in, um, but support. And so once all of the ACEs and trauma work began to really explode uh, for me, I knew I had to get someone in that was versed and skilled in being able to meet the social needs of students based off of trauma. And so we, uh, we wrote, wrote a grant. It's called the Building Strong Brains Grant. It's from actually our state of Tennessee. And part of that grant was we have a trauma-informed schools coordinator for our school district who's kind of doing the big work of education. And then the other piece was a trauma-informed practitioner. And she is a therapist. She uh, has trauma therapy background. Um, she has worked, she had worked in a, a, a residential facility that had a school. So she did have some exposure to kind of school. Um, and her role when I introduced her is to work with students individually, parents of those students, groups of students, and teachers. And so we integrated her as a part of our staff just as a teacher, and we value her expertise and mental health, just like she values my teacher's expertise in education. And so it's a real cohesive um, 
team. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, I had a question just about um, how you did manage um, her to be more integrated in the school, because often we have one of the dilemmas we have is these these roles often sit quite separately um, to the other teachers. There isn't necessarily, you know, there needs to be a really facilitated process for them to feel part of the community. Did you did you have any kind of reflections on that or ideas on how you made that work, Matthew? Sure. So um, I think her being uh, the guide of professional learning around this helped. Um, and she also resp- responds to students in crisis. Right. Yeah. We have a student who's having a crisis moment where they need support. It isn't always the principal that's responding. And so teachers could see her work in the moment. And so she was supporting them because they had a student in crisis in which they didn't know what to do. So she came in to support them. And I think that was very, very important to her integration into the building is because the teacher saw the value in what she did and they were learning skills by watching her do her work. Mm-hmm. And so she also leads monthly professional learning um, times. So she's leading teachers around the trauma-informed work with the practices. And so literally my teachers, we were at the point that first year that we were all at our wits end. And so they welcomed her because we knew we needed something and she was the something. Mm, yeah, no, that's that's really powerful. And Kai could probably add to this because we've had similar roles um, here in schools of people like that. But I, I'd imagine one of the powerful things for the teacher would be someone who can take charge in those moments for with the students. Mm-hmm. And for the mm-hmm. students, I suppose that it's not just someone who like rules in when things are bad, but that they it's someone who have had a relationship with from before. And, and you're exactly right. And yeah. she. She builds strong relationships quickly, trust. Mm. So kids trust her. Um, she, and I tell, I tell adults all the time, she's never raised her voice. She's never scolded a child. She's only supported. And I've learned so much from her standing next to her, watching her, um, you know, interacting with students. For example, the easiest one is, are those new shoes? <laughs> how you can take a child in crisis who has a new pair of shoes and it completely changes everything. And then once they de-escalate, then you get to the issues um, or what caused the crisis. Um, and what we learned quickly here is that um, an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child. So she steps in. She, we have a tap-in and tap-out system here where if I'm escalated, I have to remove myself. Um, and she's a lot of times that tap in person mm-hmm. and that in itself is such a strong piece of support for teachers. And she's an integral part of that support. That's, that's excellent. Thank you for that. Kay, did you have any questions or thoughts about that? I was just thinking as um, Matthew was talking that, that as much as people like myself who were behavior support staff that came into schools, did their best to support and then left there was no, um, no, none of that crucial learning on at the moment in the spot, having an, ec- an expert person like the trauma-informed pr- practitioner modelling to the classroom teacher immediately. I would take my skill back with me mm-hmm. to the office and the teacher mm-hmm. was still left wondering, mm-hmm. I used to often feel. 
if only I could have stayed, you know, and they could have developed, I could have passed on some of those skills to them. But because it was such an isolation type of, I guess, model, because that was the way it works most efficiently, drop in, drop out once a week sort of thing, it didn't actually give the teacher the skill to deal with it the next time because, again, they were on their own. I took my trauma-informed skill with me out the door and they were left until next Thursday, you know, and you just think, oh, which is why, like Matthew said, you end up in this vicious cycle of I'm at the end of my rope because I just don't have the skill to deal with it and it's not going to drop out from the heavens and, you know, suddenly appear in my skill set unless somebody shows me what to do and I get time to practice it, just like the kids, you know. So, yeah. And I've said so many times that this work has nothing to do with kids. No, it's all about the teachers. work is all about adults. It's all about changing our paradigms because the student situations may not change but the way we approach it will change. And that's what we're seeing um, so dynamically here at Fall Hamilton is the adult paradigm has completely shifted. Do we get frustrated? Are there days? Yes. Those will always be in existence, but those days are few and far between compared to where we were. Matthew, just on that. So you said that, you know, in your first year there was, you know, around 200 office referrals. So just in a sort of a practical sense like that, what would your office referrals a year be now? 16. All right, there you go. Wow, that's incredible. I just just did our, I just ran our data. We have 16. And what I tell people in, for the sake of transparency, again, that doesn't mean we don't have behaviors. No, 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 no. It means the way in which we're responding is different. Different. Yeah. So we now, where teachers thought then an office referral was this magical document, and it w- it did something, and it wasn't an intervention, it wasn't a support, it was just an office referral. And so now we have um, what we refer to as our social emotional learning team, where every two weeks we caseload students based off of their needs. So if we learn something new with the child or a situation, we actually have a document and that documents all support systems um, for our students. So we actually provide support now and not office referrals. Yeah, that is fascinating, Matthew. Can you tell us a little bit about those teams and those meetings and how that gets facilitated? Because I'd imagine that is such a useful process um, for the teachers and the students. It is. So we use a multi-tiered support system for students here. So we have the academic intervention piece and we also have a, a, they call it behavior. I call it social emotional um, piece because it's not about behavior. It's about the social and emotional needs. Um, And so it's made up of my school counselor. It's made up of our social worker. It's made of my dean of instruction, myself, our trauma-informed practitioner, outside and community partners, Um, It's a pretty large group of people, and we literally meet for an hour at least every two weeks, and we start talking about the interventions that students are getting if they're working, if they're not working, do we need to adjust them, Um, if a new child is bubbling up because of a certain um, situation, and so it's very strategic, Um, and we want to know that children, because a lot of our children from trauma don't have behaviors. 
some of them are, you know, internally dealing with what they're dealing with, and we can see them kind of pull away from student, uh, from, from their friends. And, and so we really um, keep a close eye on all of our students and, and that we support. So uh, we also have here, we have, it's called Centerstone. It's actually a, a company that provides um, therapy, but they, students have to have our state level insurance. And so again, we were missing a large number of children, um, but even she's a part of our SEL team. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And you've got lots of interesting programs. You've got the Leader in Me program and the Seven Habits. Um, can you talk us through that and um, how that works? Absolutely. So um, the Leader in Me is based in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, which has been used in corporate, the corporate world for years. Um, and so at another school that I, uh, I was the assistant principal, I was lucky enough to experience the first year of implementation of this program, The Leader in Me. Um, it was a predominantly EL population or English learners, minimal to no behavior, and I saw kids flourish around being leaders and leadership. And so when we got here, there was, when I got to this school, there wasn't a foundational culture piece for the school. We were PBIS, but it was done semi um, inefficiently, and there was only a few bought in. And so we use the leader in me as a foundation to build our PBIS system. It's foundationally built around the habits. And so um, habit one is be proactive. Habit two is uh, begin with the end in mind. Habit three is put first things first. Habit four is think win-win. Habit five, which I struggle with, is seek first to understand, then to be understood. And habit six is synergize. And the one that our children love the most is habit seven, and that is sharpen the saw. And so we integrated these concepts and ideas into everyday life in our children's, uh, in our children's education. So when they're reading a book and the, the author presents a character who put first things first, they connect it to the habits. Um, and it's also bound in providing leadership opportunities for students. So our students do televised announcements every morning. They say our transportation changes in the afternoon. They pass out their walkie-talkies. Um, we have student-led clubs on Fridays. We call that our sharpen the saw time. So that's cycling and sewing and anything you can think of. Um, because we've learned that when you build the capacity of a child around empowerment, you can change their personal perception. And so we have kids who are shining who have never shined and um, they feel and value themselves as being a leader. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Could you talk us through that? Pro the, uh, you've got these things called the peace corners, which um, I suppose people would know as, you know, like chill out spaces and things like that. Um, could you talk us through how that works and also about when they actually go to the trauma and from coach, how, like what did those little conversations look like, Matthew? Okay. So our peace corners came about because we had a uh, pretty significant elopement issue. Um, and when we actually asked the kids why they were running, it's because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And so that's how the peace corners came about. It was out of necessity and safety. And so the Peace Corners are basically a, a de-escalation space where children can go. There's beanbags, there's fidgets, there's coloring books, there's reflection sheets, um, where children can go to utilize the strategies of de-escalation that we teach them 
during the day. Um, and so they go there and, and, and he, I do want to um, kind of address really quick a misconception that I hear a lot and that is children will go there to play. It rarely, if ever, happens. Um, the Peace Corner is not a place of stigma. Everybody understands how it works. Uh, we had a very strategic rollout. We didn't just throw a place in the corner of every classroom and say, this is where you're gonna go when you're mad. Um, our school council actually trained all of the students before we rolled it out, and we trained the faculty. Um, this is what it's used for, here's what the students are learning. So literally students can go there when they're mad, they're angry, they're frustrated. Um, and a lot of times what they're doing there is reflecting on their emotion and understanding and going through strategies of what to do when they feel those emotions. Yeah. So Matthew, is there one in every classroom? Every single classroom. And we actually right. have three on the playground too, which we call those yep. uh, peaceful places. And they're basically they're under trees. We have giant signs that say peaceful place. Um, and if you have a child that's sitting there, that just means I need a minute. I'm, I'm frustrated. Something happened. Um, and a lot of times adults will approach and say, do you need somebody to talk to? And some of the times the kids will say yes. And sometimes the kids will say no. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, this sounds all sounds just fantastic. Really. <laughs> it sounds like there are things we've been talking about for ages. Um, so Matthew, how, how are you taking care of the teachers? You know, this, um, it sounds like a really innovative environment, but I'd imagine it's sort of demanding in lots of different ways, emotionally and professionally. What, what have you got in place to take care of the teachers? So it has been my, this has been my focus this year and, and promoting and supporting teacher self-care. Um, it's exhausting. And, and I tell people all the time, if you've seen our Edutopia video, there, it looks like unicorns and rainbows. Um, it's not like that every day. Um, it's, it's hard work. Um, it's draining work. We, we all have those bouts of, of, of compassion fatigue where we just need a minute. And so one of the systems, I think I talked about it very briefly earlier, is our tap in and tap out system. And that's when an adult is feeling overwhelmed due to a student in crisis. We allow them to step away for a moment. Um, it literally is one, two, three minutes. It isn't go to your car, drive around the block. It is just go take a second for yourself. Um, that's one really healthy strategy that we have. Um, we also are participating in something called the Happy Teacher Revolution, um, which we had the founder here at our, our building to help us facilitate. Um, and she simply said, it's an AA meeting for teachers. Um, it's a way for teachers to come together in a circle, in a restorative circle, to talk about their 12 choices that they make and something that they do well. And it's a way for them to release some of that stress um, on a pretty often basis. Um, we also highlight greatness here, is what I call it. Um, so we have the 17 Things Great Teachers Do by, um, Todd, is it Whitaker? Todd Whitaker, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, that's great folk, I love that. We pass that book around and teachers highlight what they identify in other teachers and then they write personal notes in that book. And that book's been traveling around the school for months, um, or actually weeks, I should say, about four weeks, just to build them up. And then we also do productive uh, restorative circles uh, as a faculty. It's how we problem solve. And so again, going back to our, our brief conversation about punishment and consequence, teachers still grapple with that. It's still a raw subject, right? We, 
we bring teachers together in a circle and we address it. Um, we talk about it. We problem solve through it. We don't just say, well, you need to get over it. And so really providing voice for teachers around what we're grappling with through this work has been imperative. What, what are some of the challenges you're facing at the moment? I, I know you spoke about supporting the teachers, um, and that just sounds like you've got a few initiatives going there. What are some of the other challenges that you're facing at the moment, Matthew? So, and, and just to be frank, um, the challenge that, that we're really seeing right now is um, a systematic issue, and I don't mean my school system, I'm saying big picture systematic issue of not understanding trauma in children and not being able to provide enough support. And so, for example, um, we have a child who lost their father to gun violence in his in the yard on October 31st. Mm. Child had some, some, some issues or some bits of need of support. Um, <clears throat> but obviously after this happened, the child went into full crisis mode. And so <clears throat> the system tells us that we need then to start him through our, what we call S team or support team process. Um, to identify him within a disability. And it's, it's ethically, it hurts me. Um, we're not going through that way, but we have to get people to understand trauma isn't a disability. Trauma is an experience. So what we're trying to do at Fall Hamilton is build a space for students who are in toxic environment at the time and not have to identify them as having an emotional disturbance or a disability, emotional disability, um, but providing them support to get them to where they can stabilize. That's really one of the big pieces that I'm fighting for right now um, in my school, is giving us a space um, and opportunity and staff to be able to support students through this. And I think the other is genuinely just staff. Um, we are a small school and we are really short staff. And so that is a struggle that we have. I think our momentum is continuing. I think our teacher focus is continuing. And I think our paradigms have shifted. Um, so those are really two big pieces that we're struggling with. Matthew, so, thank you so much for talking to us today. It was so practical and really inspirational. Um, and you know, and I think you've actually addressed a lot of the sort of objections people have to taking on this sort of work. Um, just last couple of questions: what, what would you say to people who are still cynical and uh, about adopting such approaches? A lot of the times, you know, we work in fairly big schools where these kids represent a really small portion of of the kind of difficulties, but a large, you know, represent a large amount of the behavioural referrals. What well, what would be your message to these educators about adopting such approaches? I would probably approach them with the research. I mean, there is evidence, um, especially in the U.S., of a school-to-prison pipeline. And unfortunately, it's predominantly our minority students and our minority boys. And so we would, my question would be for them, how has that worked for us? It's not working. So we have to do something different. We all know that doing the same thing and getting the same results over and over again is insanity. And so I would start with that, probably a little lighter. Um, but I would also say, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you and I would name specific children. Let me tell you their story. 
because I have story after story after story of children who, when I walked in this building, were unable to sit in a class, were unable to um, understand their emotions, were unable to even realize what they had gone through um, and had zero ability or resilience. And now I see them being leaders in my building. Um, and so I would probably share personal stories with them. Um, and, and, and then going again back to the research of why, why, why. Um, you can't deny brain science. And, and it, this is grounded in brain science. Yeah, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? Um, and what, what are you curious about um, today? Uh, what are the things that you're still wondering about um, at this stage? I'm just wondering on, you know, what the ultimate outcomes will be for our students. And I'm, I, I continually wonder because I know Fall Hamilton is different than any other school in my district. I know it. Um, and I know that kids, when they move to our middle school, um, will potentially have challenges. And, and I wonder if, if what we're doing for them now what the impact will look like. I know there's an impact. I don't question the impact. I just question what is it going to look like for our students. And I tell my teachers all the time, the seeds that we're sowing right now, we may not see the growth for years, but I can assure them with certainty that there will be a day we will look back and go, that absolutely had a major impact on all students that we worked with. Yeah, that's the piece when they come back and tell you about the difference you've made. And that's what keeps us all going, really, doesn't it? Um, Matthew, thank you so much. We really appreciate you at the end of the day speaking to us. Um, Kay, did you have any final words or comments for Matthew? No, 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 other than just to say yes. Again, thank you very much. And it's always very inspiring that we're <laughs> way, way across the ocean and we're all pushing the same barrow. So it's great. And thank you guys for allowing me to talk. And to be honest, when I, when I realized you're based in Australia, um, you know, I always say this is a, this is a national issue. Um, and it is, this is a world issue. This isn't a national issue for just the U.S. I mean, and that fires me up, inspires me more to know that this work um, is transcending through the world and, and we're all positively impacting kids through grace and pre-forgiveness um, and knowing that at the end we're building resilient children who are one day going to run all of our countries and hopefully the world they live in is a little bit brighter than the world we sometimes live in so yeah that's that's a great way to finish um matthew if people were looking to get in touch with you or learn more about you um, um are, is there some kind of um contact details you wanted to share with us at all sure um my twitter handle is at principalist <laughs> the most principal um, and then uh, my email address is actually matthew with one t so m-a-t-h-e-w dot portel p-o-r-t-e-l-l at m-n-p-s dot org um, and i get a lot of emails um, especially after our edutopia piece and i absolutely answer everyone um, and a lot are just what can i do to start and uh and i'm helping a lot of people try to get started because it's a it's this work is valid it's it's not going anywhere and it's benefiting kids 
That's excellent. And we'll put up the link to the Edutopia articles as well and the videos. They're, they are really interesting and inspiring. Matthew, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It'd be wonderful to keep in touch and hear how things go at the school. I appreciate it. And thank you all for the work you do. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Take care. Thanks. That was our interview with Matthew Portell from Fall Hamilton Elementary. Thank you to Matthew for sharing his experience with us. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting www.tipbs.com. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.